Thanks for tuning in to Women's Voices. My name is Genevieve Gluck, and in this episode I'm featuring a conversation that took place as part of a webinar for Women's Declaration International, a campaign that promotes awareness of women's human rights and lobbies for their consideration in public policies. In this discussion, Caroline Norma and Emma Dalton discuss Dale Spender's book, Man-Made Language, as part of a series titled Radical Feminist Perspectives. To sign the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, please visit womensdeclaration.com. So today uh, we're going to be talking about Man-Made Language by Dale Spender. Um, But firstly, I'll just tell you who I am, because I think maybe some of you, many of you don't know who I am. Um, So I am uh, a lecturer at RMIT University in Melbourne. I work with Caroline. We're colleagues in the same department. So I teach uh, Japanese and I research women in politics in Japan. So both of us have an interest in language. Um, Caroline works in the translating and interpreting department. And we, uh, we met uh, doing our masters, in fact, in Japanese uh, interpreting and translating uh, in Queensland about 20 years ago. So we've got that um, uh, common interest in language in Japanese specifically. Um, so we're doing this book today because of that interest and because I, um, in addition to teaching Japanese, this year at university I'm teaching a new course called uh, Global Language and it's actually not a new course, I've inherited it and I'm going to uh, change it a bit to make it less sociolinguistic and more political and in doing that I want to include something about uh, women and language. Um, And I'm going to take a chapter of this book to do that. So I had to read the book for that purpose. It it has been sitting on my bookshelf for a few months. And um, so I read it and I thought, oh, this is actually a good book for the um, series, this series. So I suggested it and um, Caroline agreed to uh, do it with me. So um, let's start, we're gonna do it chapter by chapter. Um, So I'll start first by just talking a little bit about who Dale Spender is. So Dale Spender was born in Newcastle in New South Wales in 1943. She was a high school English literature and university lecturer before she went to London to do a PhD on sex and language. Apparently, her assigned supervisor did not initially understand that researching sex and language was as important as researching sex and class. She had wanted to do a master's degree initially in Sydney, looking at the concept of mateship in Australian literature, but this was turned down, lucky for us. So then she ended up in London, writing about this sort of thing. Eventually she became the editor of Women's Studies International Forum, which is an academic journal, She wrote and edited over 30 books about women, education, literature, and language. She was prolific, easy to read, and well-known in the UK, Europe, and the US. But when she returned to Australia in the 1980s, she was unable to get a job at a university. She wrote uh, one of her biggest or well-known books is Women of Ideas and What Men Have Done to Them in 1982. This was written in uh, 1980. The first edition and the second edition, which is what we're talking about, was in 1985. 
she also published a book with her sister Lynn called Scribbling Sisters, which was a collection of letters they had written to each other. Her relationship to her sister seems to have been and continues to be a close one. They discussed the male control over language, publishing, education and technologies and encouraged each other to write about these things. Spender took to wearing only purple in honour of the suffragettes, but also as a protest against men, and she continues to do so. In 1996, Spender was awarded the member of the Order of Australia for services to the community as a writer and researcher in the field of equality of opportunity and equal status for women. She might be uh, best known in the wider community for a paragraph she wrote that sometimes does the rounds on social media. It's from one of her many books, for the record, The Making and Meaning of Feminist Knowledge. And I'll read it just so you, you probably have already seen it, just so you know um, uh, what, who, who I'm talking about. Fem feminism has fought no wars. It has killed no opponents. It has set up no concentration camps, starved no enemies, practiced no cruelties. Its battles have been for education, for the vote, for better working conditions, for safety in the streets, for childcare, for social welfare, for rape crisis centres, women's refuges, reforms in the law. If someone says, oh, I'm not a feminist, I ask, why, what's your problem? Okay, so I'll start talking about the book now. So as I mentioned, it was first published in 1980 and the second edition was published in 1985. When she wrote the first edition, she was tentative, or so she says. She says she was tentative in her writing, and she attempted to make her point to men, to readers, using the theory of good conduct, that is, to be polite in asking them to understand her argument and change the way they behave. In the intervening years between the first and the second edition, she learnt that women before her had attempted to record the way that women are silenced, but they themselves had mostly been silenced. She gives the example of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and other American suffragettes deliberate, who deliberately used the theory of bad conduct because they realized that being nice and kind didn't get them results. They held meetings and didn't let men speak and recorded these incidents as causing men great discomfort. She realized that women had in fact known about the dominance of men in language and had written about it. But in 1979, Spender didn't know this. And this, she says, is testament to the silencing of women's words. So we shouldn't believe that women have made uninterrupted progress because a lot of what our foremothers have done and has sa have said has disappeared. For example, there's a lot of talk these days of women in mixed sex work meetings saying something which is ignored only for a man to say the same thing a few minutes later and for it to be picked up as a brilliant and original idea. When Spender wrote about this in 1979 in her first edition, she did not know that Elizabeth Cady Stanton had been talking about the same phenomenon in the mid 1800s. In other words, says Spender, what we are saying today is not new. And the fact that it isn't new should give us confidence to make our claims strongly. But we also have to be very careful that what we are saying now might disappear. So we have to be alert and we have to attempt to keep this continuum. She says that men only have a partial view of the world, but because the world is a patriarchal one where men are in a position to be heard more than women, men are able to insist that women see things their way. 
women's different experiences are unintelligible. Women who don't accept this have gone down in history as failures. We have no sense of humor. We are abnormal, hysterical or bitter. So how do we change this? She says we must understand how patriarchy functions. Finding out about language is crucial to this because of the important role language plays in creating our realities. So this is a quote. Language helps form the limits of our reality. It is our means of ordering, classifying and manipulating the world. It is through language that we become members of a human community, that the world becomes comprehensible and meaningful, that we bring into existence the world in which we live. Despite the sort of um, negative um, connotations of all of this, she says that we can't lose hope because language, despite it being patriarchal, it is a human product and therefore we can modify it. We have to stop acquiescing and begin to invest the language with our own authentic meaning. This doesn't mean that reappropriating sexist language will suddenly give women more power. And she said that it's insulting to suggest so. But liberation or linguistic liberation is as important as economic liberation from men and both have to be pursued together. So the basis of the book is uh, basically bringing together lots of different arguments from lots of different theorists and feminists and linguists, but also she has her own data set, which is uh, recordings of thousands of mixed sex and single sex conversations, including consciousness raising groups, academic seminars and conferences, feminist conferences and private social gatherings. And these little tidbits are really fascinating. Um, so I'll just go into chapter one. That was that was the intro. <laughs> Um, so chapter one is about the field of linguistics and she critiques it as being based on sexist assumptions. So the discipline of linguistics has assumed that women's speech and therefore women are deficient. Women lack confidence, are tentative and less effective in their speech. Uh, and one of the leading um, uh, gender and linguistics scholar, Robin Lackhoff, um, for example, is uh, talked about as an example of this, how she um, analyzes women's speech and finds it to be deficient in some way because she's comparing it to the male standard. There are lots of assumptions in linguistics, says Spender. <clears throat> For example, um, and some of these assumptions are unfounded. So the assumption that women are more tentative hasn't actually been proved. <laughs> so for example, on the contrary, it was discovered that men use more uh, what's known as tag questions than women. And tag questions are things like, oh, didn't we see that? Oh, sorry, we saw that movie yesterday, didn't we? Or your purse is on the couch, isn't it? That's a tag question. And those tag questions indicate a sort of tentativeness. And researchers actually said, has found that men use more tag questions than women. Despite this evidence, this did nothing to dislodge the assumption that women are more tentative and bizarrely, instead of um, using the absence of any, anything to prove the hypothesis as evidence that the assumptions are wrong, linguists have believed they just need to look harder and in different places. There are also examples of linguists consolidating the idea that men own language and women's language is a defective form of it. Uh, women prefer veiled and indirect speech, which is insipid and languid and men are therefore apparently more persuasive and better speakers. Men are the innovators of language. Studies of race and language 
do not separate classism and racism in language from classism and racism in society. But oddly, she argues, linguists do separate studies of sexism in language from studies of sexism and society. So she attempts to pull them together because she believes it's been a divide and rule strategy within linguistics that hasn't served feminists well. The outcome of this approach in linguistics is a description of how language is sexist and a lack of analysis of why or what effects it has. So for example, it was found that there's a, a lot more negative um, terms for women than there are for men, but it wasn't studied in this, any systematic way. Like what does this mean? And how does this affect women? How have women been involved in this? What has it got to do with patriarchy, etc.? So, as I mentioned, she suggests we can change words that they are not sexist. This is one step in the right direction, but another step is to change society so that the meanings of words automatically become less, less sexist. <laughs> For example, if it were a less sexist society, the word women's liver would not be a pejorative. But these two processes have to occur together because as she says, words help to structure the world we live in and the words we have help to structure a sexist world in which women are assigned a subordinate position. Her criticism of linguistics is that because of the sexist assumptions embedded in the discipline, the language used by women has been deemed inferior when in fact, it is women's degraded social position that makes the language inferior. If men were using the language that women used, she asserts, then that language would be regarded as superior. A key theme to emerge from chapter one and then to weave throughout the book is women's silence. Despite a common belief that women talk more than men, the opposite is true. The assumption that women talk too much is based on women's silence being the yardstick. That is to say, women who talk at all talk too much. A silent woman is the ideal. What's more, men rarely listen silently when women are speaking. They also interrupt women more often. In a mixed sex setting, men steer the conversation in the directions they want it to go in and therefore maintain control over the content of what is being said. Women are also the ones who have to do the emotional labor in talking. That is, they have to draw things out of men. They have to make the most effort. Their job is to be the good listener, the support, and women who fail in this are bitchy and domineering. Uh, so over to you, Caroline, for chapter two. Thanks, Emma. Uh, chapter two uh, is interesting because it takes, so the observations that Emma has just said of uh, Spender in the introduction and the chapter one, it takes that even further to suggest that it's not just the language and its linguistic resources um, that exclude women, but also the creation of academic disciplines whose knowledge foundations are structured such that women are excluded. And she focuses specifically on sociology. Before that, um, her idea of the way that uh, knowledge is um, created in society or what she calls culture is the participation of people in um, activities such as uh, philosophy. So, so she calls, she says that men are the influential philosophers, the orators, the poets, the politicians or the rhetoricians, 
the grammarians, the linguists and the educators and that women have not held these roles and so therefore have not had the chance to contribute language and writing and speech to the culture as a cultural product. So she sees these the outputs of language as a cultural product that then influences um, the knowledge base. As a result, um, because of women's lack of participation in these speech-based roles, we've seen men's definitions and linguistic conceptualizations, she says, of the world become necessarily partial. So this is a key phrase throughout the book that uh, the language as we have, have it is a partial one. And by that, she means that it reflects only um, in its creation, men's values, men's perspective, men's interests. And so men create language uh, in their own interests to exclude women. So in that respect, language is a partial phenomenon. Uh, as Emma mentioned, this issue about um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, for example, going back and having found that she said the same things in the mid-19th century that Spender ended up saying, this is not, it's not that Spender's reason for telling the reader that was not just to sort of say, oh, you know, feel a bit guilty about that fact that I didn't know. It's not that. It's, it's actually quite methodological to the whole book. Um, so... Spender is very keen for women to understand that, or in her belief, that yes, language is a patriarchal phenomenon created by men in their own interests for their own sake. However, um, as Emma said, because it's a, a product of human endeavour, Spender believes that women can uh, create their own language and their own knowledge base and their own value system. Her methodology for doing so is that we need to talk to each other uh, and not to men and we need to take each other seriously and, and write uh, specifically in relation to each other. But not just that, she sees, she sees the anecdote to women's invisibility or the problem of, of women's visibility as um, combated by our efforts to make women visible and especially across time across history. So it's this problem that she sees of, yes, women in any particular generation might manage to come together to create some, some of our own namings, some of our own uh, knowledge bases and, and concepts. We might achieve that to some greater or lesser extent in any particular generation. But the fundamental problem is that we don't have that carried forward. Um, and she says, and in a later chapter that I'll talk about, she. She says that men are quite deliberate in you know, making sure that we don't carry it forward. And so she sees that as a major obstacle to our liberation. Uh, but it's about knowledge bases. And of course, what men have done on the other hand is create whole academic disciplines on the basis of their own uh, theories, their own experiences and views and knowledge of the world. So she takes sociology in particular and sociology is foundational. And this is back in 1979. Um, I see Paula, just by the way, Paula, you made a good point that, you know, some of the observations that Spender's making in this book don't necessarily apply to the academic, in any particular academic discipline now, like linguistics. Um, so, yeah, so that's fully acknowledged. So we're just describing the book as we had it back in 1979. But um, nonetheless, I mean, I think some of the observations, at least particularly in relation to sociology, um, Spender suggests that sociology's foundational concepts 
of both work and power and how they're formulated by the academic, academic discipline of uh, sociology in the Western world are such that they are fundamentally exclusionary of women. And she says that this is not just, you know, an item of knowledge that excludes women. It's actually theories of, you know, theories of the world, understandings of the world that underpin a whole academic discipline. And because academic, academic disciplines are institutions, social institutions that endure over time, then that's how men manage culturally to have their namings of things in the world, their linguistic resources, their culture, their knowledge, perceptions of knowledge, brought forward in time and across history, and therefore to perpetuate um, the language for themselves in their own interests. That's her kind of insight in chapter two. Um, Spender is at the same time, uh, in, in a discussion goes backwards and forwards between this kind of devastating understanding of what we face under patriarchy in terms of language, but also she's concurrently hopeful um, and gives us tips as to how to combat uh, the, the structures that we face. Um, she draws upon Mary Daly's work from 1978 to say that women need to reconceptualize the objects and events of the world. So it's not just a matter of um, changing the encoded meanings of language to suit ourselves, that we actually need to reorganize ways of making sense of the world uh, if we are to um, break through the silence of women and um, not leave it undisturbed, is what she says. Um, and she thinks the constructions of feminist knowledge and the encoding of women's meanings is a direct challenge to the patriarchal order but of course, any women, as Emma said, any woman or women who attempt to do that are instantly um, derided as unscientific, subjective, emotional, and uh, crazy, mad, mad women. Um, and so she's skeptical, and just finishing off here for chapter two, she's skeptical of obviously individual women entering the academic disciplines for the effect that they can have in overturning uh, the, the sort of exclusionary ways of uh, uh, conceiving and thinking and speaking in those disciplines uh, because of these fundamental structures of knowledge at their, their, their foundations that are exclusionary women in the first place. Uh, but on a happier and a more hopeful note at the end, she says that when women's voices do penetrate, so when we do manage to reach some consensus among ourselves as to a certain item of knowledge or a a naming of a phenomenon, that a cumulative, a cumulative process can apply. Women-centered meanings will multiply as the pattern of women's existence begins to emerge in both formal and informal contexts. And that's her kind of hopeful note at the end of chapter two. Great, thank you. Um, so chapter three is called the dominant and the muted. And these are terms that are borrowed from anthropologists, uh, Edwin and Shirley Ardner, who argued that anthropologists would make claims about a civilization or a culture without talking to half the population, women, and that this meant women were muted or silent in the whole discipline of anthropology. So she borrowed this, these to talk about um, women's mutedness with language as well. 
So similarly to what was found in anthropology, Spender says that women are muted because men are in control and the language and the meanings and the knowledge of women cannot be accounted for outside that male control. The different meanings that men embed into language, the different meanings compared to what women embed in language, she argues doesn't necessarily mean anything biologically deterministic. So this, she said, is a common accusation of people who argue that men and women have different perceptions of the world. She says, you know, even though they have different perceptions, it's that, that's because they are situated differently in the patriarchal order. She brings up the idea of assertive assertiveness training courses for women and uh, urges caution because these are based on the idea that women need to talk more like men. So men are believed to be skilled in the art of persuasion and great orators, orators, I'm not sure how to pronounce that word, while women are believed to be more skilled in the art of conversation. So here's that public-private um, binary where men are deemed to be more suited to the public, women are deemed to be, belong in the private. That is, it is linguistic factors that make someone successful rather than sex. Yet she argues that women will still be judged as women regardless of how forcefully or persuasively they speak. Furthermore, persuasion is suggested by some to be a profoundly patriarchal type of discourse. To attempt to change someone's opinion against their will is perhaps not something many women want to do. Of course, there are exceptions and she raises Margaret Thatcher, and perhaps today we could include Julie Gillard or other women who have succeeded in the public domain by thriving as public speakers. Um, she says there exists a block between the meaning generation, the generation of meaning, which is what men do, and the expression of that by women. There is nowhere for women's meanings to go because the conceptual space in which they would lie is overrun by the dominant model of events generated by the dominant group. Women have to adapt to the dominant model and this is difficult. So women are therefore stuck trying to encode feminist or at least women's reality in a language that is not their own. They end up adopting different strategies such as being indirect instead of spontaneous. In other words, they have to take extra steps to get their message across because they are speaking a foreign language. When women don't take these extra steps or fail somehow, as we've mentioned, they're criticised for being too emotional. Or another criticism that women often get is they're just not saying it the right way. Or you're, you know, if you said it a different way, we'd, we'd get it, we'd understand, we'd, we'd change would take you seriously. She narrates an interaction she observed and recorded at a language sex conference in 1979, where when women said that men talked too much and they needed to let women talk more, many men left in protest. The men who remained, who were concerned with the issue and they wanted to change their speech were nonetheless perplexed about how to do it. They claimed that it wasn't fair or equal that they just had to be quiet. Spender says that feminists advocate for the abolition of the muted and the dominant, not the reversal. This nonetheless requires men to divest some of their power, and this appears to be unfathomable for many men. 
So women are not outside this dominant muted um, structure. So we should also not be surprised when we see the world through a sexist lens, she says, or when we come to sexist conclusions ourselves. Men have a version of reality that we understand because it is the dominant one, but we have our own too. So we understand multiple versions while men only know one. She calls this the monodimensional reality, that's men, whereas women have a multidimension reality. So awareness of the discrepancy between this monodimensional reality and the multidimensional reality, this awareness arose, she says, uh, in consciousness raising groups. And I'll talk a little bit more about that um, in chapter four, but she also says um, something that I, it would be nice to hear many different women's uh, points of view on this. She says that um, because of their marginal position that affords them multiple uh, viewpoints, women are therefore in a position of potential power because men only have tunnel vision and therefore women somehow are in a potential position of power because we have multiple ways of seeing the world. But she doesn't take this any further to sort of say then how, how we can actually uh, do anything about our oppressed position with this potential power. So there's a bit of a contradiction, I, I think, in this particular claim. So consciousness, consciousness raising can be the path for women to form what she calls a metapatriarchal reality. Through consciousness raising, women begin to understand that their failures to be feminine, for example, are not personal inadequacies, but inadequacies in the male definition of femininity. So Betty Friedan's The Problem with uh, No Name had no name uh, precisely because women's problems that they were experiencing couldn't be described using the existing man-made language. So consciousness raising groups are places where women began to find their voice to become unmuted. So upending male supremacy will require women to stop being silent. This won't necessarily result in the redistribution of male power, but it will put male supremacy in a bad light and encourage more women to break their silence. Chapter four, um, I'll talk about chapter four too. So this is a continuation really of the sort of things you talked about in chapter three, particularly consciousness raising groups and women becoming unmuted. This chapter is called Woman Talk, The Legitimate Fear. So woman talk is a dangerous threat to the patriarchal social order. We know this because there are no male equivalents to disparaging terms for woman talk, chatter, natter, prattle, nag, bitch, whine, gossip. Not because men don't do it, but because when men talk, it's deemed important and worthwhile. In the past, unlike men who could talk to each other in pubs, union meetings, sporting clubs, she says, women have been deprived spaces to talk to each other without men present. The social isolation of women has been embedded in social organisation. Spender claims this has been deliberate because men know that when women come together, they compare notes and this has subversive potential. Women are thus denied the opportunity to talk by a 
keeping them silent in mixed sex settings and B, not allowing them to gather and talk. When these control mechanisms fail, that is when they do talk in mixed sex settings, women are accused of talking too much. And when they talk to each other, their talk is discredited. So this then leads to, um, they'll spend a talking more about consciousness raising groups. So they, I mean, there was a talk on this particular topic a few weeks ago, actually, and that was at the front of my mind when I was reading this. So they, these groups exploded in the late 1960s and were a place where women could talk to women in single sex spaces, in women's style, cooperative and listening, typically in each other's homes. Consciousness raising was very important in the feminist movement. Spender says that it is a process which helps to transform the muted condition of women. It is through this process that women begin to perceive the dimensions of the dominant reality, the existence of the dominant group's definition of them and the false nature of all those meanings. Instead of being constrained to a language encoded by others, she becomes a producer of meaning herself. So in doing so, she becomes, or she begins to abandon her muted state. So this is what Caroline was talking about. Women need to talk to each other to encode the language with our own values. And consciousness raising groups, according to Spender, was a very important space for that. A great deal of women in the women's movement relayed how threatened their husbands or male partners were when consciousness raising groups started. They wanted to know what they were talking about and were scared that women were talking about them, which they were. Many women abandoned consciousness raising groups to placate their husbands and to improve their relationships, which had begun unraveling when women, after discussing things at consciousness raising groups, began asking men to, for example, do the housework. At the time of writing, Spender um, wrote about this belief that consciousness raising groups were on the decline. This concerned her because it suggested that patriarchal strategies to silence women were working. So why women prefer to talk to other women is obvious. Not only are we likely to share interests, when speaking to men, we have to watch what we say and we are often silenced anyway. The styles are different too. Men practice one-upmanship. There's a competitive nature to men's talk, whereas uh, women take turns and are not competitive. Um, so Caroline, over to you for the next couple of chapters. Thanks, Emma. I, I might just truncate uh, my description of the next couple of chapters to first uh, quickly address Bodil's excellent question in the Q&A here, just because I don't want to get to the end and not have people's kind questions uh, uh, mentioned. And I know uh, also Paola really well in the chat did, uh, based on her expertise knowledge, say that, you know, some critiques within Spender's book are likely to be outdated in relation to the discipline of linguistics and and that's I assume that's perhaps why Bodil is asking in the uh, in the Q&A whether it's really worth us as feminists going back to read uh, Spender's work um it's just uh, I know and this is no criticism uh don't take it as such it's just that it's a slightly ironic question uh, in relation to Spender's book particularly because she's so on this hobby horse of telling us that we need to not do that uh with women's um cultural products that we produce so we don't want to be in a position where we uh, overlook or ignore sort of bypass anything women have sort of written or said in history on the basis of any of this kind of conceptualization of it's out of date or 
you know, those women in the first wave of feminism were religious. Uh, we all, as radical feminists, we hear those things all the time, don't we? That there's there's always a reason not to read um, books from, you know, about five minutes, uh, you know, greater than five minutes ago. And, and particularly in academia, I know many of the sisters here, you know, passing through academia, either students or teachers, you know, we get that all, all the time. We, we literally cannot use the kinds of books that are discussed in this webinar series, we cannot use in, in uh, scholarship and be taken seriously. And that even extends to Catherine McKinnon. I've had directly had professors in my department, um, you know, say that she's out of date nowadays, like that, that sort of stuff. Anyway, so, but, but, you know, just taking an objective viewpoint on that, it really is an effort, particularly by men and male academics, men who are the uh, cultural producers in our societies, philosophers and uh, politicians and the like, uh, where they actively um, sort of render women's writing and speech as old hat, as old fashioned, outdated, religious or something, uh, and give women, give women in the next generation as little incentive to read uh, the read it as much as possible. That's that's the tactic that uh, Spender sees is in operation, and I don't doubt uh, that feminists have made great improvements to the discipline of linguistics, no doubt. I'm not in that discipline, but I am in an offshoot discipline of linguistics. And interestingly, just by coincidence, I uh, did a research project where I attempted to find within the uh, body of literature scholarship for translation studies. And this discipline's it's much, much um, younger than linguistics, obviously, but it's, it's a fair, fairly substantial discipline these days. And I tried to find any evidence of a radical feminist analysis of the undertaking of interpreting or translation um, practice at all, and I couldn't find it. I could certainly find it flooded with liberal feminist accounts of critiques of the profession and the practice, but uh, not radical. So sort of, you know, even if women and feminists do ma manage to make uh, improvements to sort of old disciplines, perhaps, and they've perhaps done so for sociology too, then we find, I think, that the male academy producing all these offshoot disciplines, criminology is one of them, we have no feminist innovation in criminology, I, I don't think. But sorry, I'll get back to uh, Spender's book. We don't need to. I just wanted to respond to the question. It was a great question. And I'm sure Emma has thoughts as well. Um, so I'll be quick uh, with uh, chapters five and six and uh, mention that chapter five uh, is titled Language and Reality, Who Made the World? Uh, this chapter is focused on... Um, the reader understanding that it's not just the products of language, so the namings, the conceptualization, the items of knowledge that actually uh, that, that cause women's exclusion and silence, but it's actually the uh, capacities and resources of any given language itself that constrain women in being able to do so. So Spender thinks that languages are wholly a uh, social, socially constructed uh, entity or phenomenon and that men have taken active steps to both uh, create language as in their interests and um, it, reflecting their experience of the world, and that they continue to do so. So what she sets herself, Dal Spender sets herself, sets herself the task of going back into history and attempting to give readers an example of where she sees men as having actively done so in relation to language. And she brings up the interesting example of men in um, male grammarians of the 19th century, apparently introducing a grammar rule that 
the, uh, the noun man and the pronoun he will not only uh, be used in English to uh, nominate what we understand to be men, the male half the population, but also in addition to that meaning to have us take on a second meaning and that is to indicate both women and men. So as we all know, um, and this isn't current, uh, this is uh, an old practice, but man being used to effectively mean humanity and to refer both to women and men. Uh, for example, uh, man is a sophisticated primate. He has a tractable thumb. So there's the pronoun and the noun being used in that second sense. And apparently it was male grammarians of the um, 19th century that introduced this new rule and attempted to enforce it, even as women tried to bypass it by just using the prior practices, saying they or humankind or something like that. Um, Spender is then concerned to teach us that that naming then shapes uh, knowledge and reality. And she very specifically says, she refers to some empirical research that showed that readers do not, um, when they read that usage, that second meaning usage of the pronoun he or the noun man, that they don't take it as including women, um, in, in fact, as readers. Um, and then she, uh, uh, then she, um, then Dale Spender discusses the situation that women face uh, in relation to that uh, grammatical rule that was invented in the 19th century, in that as readers, women have to uh, question whether they are actually included in the uh, reference or included in the noun or not. So male readers, whether they read the words man and he being used in the first sense, just exclusively referring to them, or in the second sense, uh, as referring to them along with women, it doesn't matter. Either way, as readers, they are, are confirmed in their existence and identity. And then um, uh, Dale Spender says that, uh, quoting here, he or man makes males linguistically visible and females linguistically invisible. It promotes male imagery in everyday life at the expense of female imagery, so that it seems reasonable to assume the world is male until proven otherwise. And all of us here, I mean, when, when I was reading the book constantly, my mind was what we face with the transgenderist um, push. I mean, this, this is a linguistic push too. And, you know, if 40 years ago, Dale Spender was, you know, talking about this problem of the man he issue, what we face now surely is hundred times, you know, more influential in terms of structuring knowledge and reality than even that. So I think um, if nothing else, going back and reading Spender's book for, you know, for insights into what we face now is, is a, good, a good thing, even though of course she doesn't mention anything like that. And then uh, going on to chapter six, the next one, just because I know time's upon us. Um, chapter six is called The Politics of Naming. And Spender continues on from the previous chapter that I just described, chapter five. Uh, and, but this time, um, examines two major conceptual phenomena that structure uh, you know, all societies, if not just Western societies, one being religion, a Christian-based religion, and one being sexuality. Um, for the first part of the chapter discussing, um, I'll just say, so just a quote here, here at the outset of the chapter, uh, Spender believes that, quote, in order to live in the world, we must name it. And that's why the chapter is called The Politics of Naming. Names are essential for the construction of reality, for without a name, it is difficult to accept the existence of an object 
an event, a feeling. Naming is the means whereby we attempt to order and structure the chaos and flux of existence, which would otherwise be an undifferentiated mass. By assigning names, we impose a pattern and a meaning which allows us to manipulate the world. And so in relation to religion, unsurprisingly, she draws almost wholly on Mary Daly's work from 1978 and points out the fact that obviously um, with the deity, the, the creator being male, that automatically, of course, um, empowers men as supreme and superior to not only just that results in subordinating women, but also that women, according to the Christian religious myths, are treacherous and betrayal, betrayers of men uh, through, through the fall and through their coming into existence. And so it's kind of a, um, you know, women as the rib of man, rib of man is kind of a double subordinate status structured through that major body of thought in Western societies. Uh, but just jumping ahead, her second example of in the major body of thought that structures um, structures language and, and reality, and that's sexuality. And again, uh, this is where you'll find a little bit of a dated section in Spender's book, I think. My, my view was that. What she suggests is that sexuality is an attribute um, attributed or harboured by only men, according to the patriarchal construction, uh, and not women, whereas women have been um, attributed with reproductive ability and not a sexuality, is her view at the time, this is 40 years ago. Um, and this kind of makes sense at the time because I think a lot of the feminist preoccupation was with women not understanding aspects of their uh, reproductive organs and bodies and there was a big push, obviously, our bodies, ourselves, et cetera, to try and um, for women to, to understand their bodies in maybe the sexual function of their bodies to some extent. Anyway, obviously now um, women's, women have been much more sexualized and pornified. And so that's probably less salient uh, point that she makes. But her second point was really good. And this is a really good part of the book I enjoyed. Um, and she's spend a Dale Spender suggest that, for example, one other concept within sexuality is uh, frigidity, as we know. And um, Spender observes that frigidity has, is defined as a label for women as a naming of reality that prioritizes the male bystander view of female behavior. And that men uh, equate female frigidity with male impotence. And then from Spender's view, obviously there's no equivalence between those two conditions. And she suggests to us that we alternatively see female withdrawal from sex with men for good reasons, um, uh, as a good phenomenon rather than any female condition similar to impotence amongst men. And she um, emphasizes this point by saying, heterosexual celibacy has been underrated uh, within the patriarchal structure of language and, and concept and it's actually a point of opportunity for feminists to make hay and make different meanings and knowledge um, around uh, these ideas of frigidity. Um, and obviously Mary Daly made, did do that in her work too. So that was a nice little discussion. And then coming right to the end of the chapter six now, um, Spender uh, celebrates feminists for the achievements we've made in actually um, conceptualizing things like sexism and sexual harassment um, with our own meanings and namings and our own knowledge bases and to, ha to have had those co concepts endure over 
time, to some extent, we still just hold on to uh, the, the creation of, of um, the idea of sexism or patriarchy, um, namings for the situation that we're in under patriarchy, for example, that, that has endured over time. Um, and uh, Spender suggests that uh, women need a language which constructs the reality of women's autonomy, women's strength, women's power. Uh, with such a language, we will not be a muted group. So our liberation methodolo methodologically requires us to create these meanings and namings of ourselves as strong in order that we can then use those towards action uh, for further liberation. Okay, great, thank you. Um, yeah, just um, thanks for all the comments. I sort of tried to catch up, um, but I'm not good at multitasking. Um, so yes, yeah, a few comments there with, uh, about the terms miss and misses. She, she does talk about them earlier in the book, I think in chapter two or one, maybe year two. And um, even, even that, so just like um, Caroline just mentioned, the, um, the, the use of the word man to encompass everyone is sort of newish. We haven't always done that. The, the term miss and misses as well, um, didn't used to necessarily apply to married and unmarried women. It was the miss was for young women and missus was for older women. Your marital status was irrelevant. So that's changed and reading, you know, this is one of the, I think, important uh, reasons for reading this book is what I sort of, what I mentioned at the beginning, it's our progress is not linear. Um, it's sometimes we go backwards and it's good to know where and how. Um, and I think that's one of the main um, things I got from reading this book. Um, I was surprised, you... Spender, it's not, not an interrupt your chain of thought, Emma, but I was surprised. I, mean, I suppose it's a, it, that was also a dated aspect of the book in that Spender did focus on that Ms. Ms. thing. And the information that it wasn't always the case was very interesting. But the phenomenon that we have now in the Western world, at least, where women have the option generally of keeping their surnames throughout their lives but don't apparently mm. the percentages mm. of women in the western world holding their own surnames after marriage yeah. is very low let alone not let alone allowing their children to take on their husband's yeah. surname I mean I suppose that's it. I mean this is also an, an issue of language I think the idea of women you know, you know supposedly choosing to give up their name not only give up their own names but giving up those of their children um, in Japan, Emma will know uh, as well, that's been a big uh, campaign recently amongst feminists, and not just liberals, but also radicals to, uh, at, at present, Japan doesn't allow um, uh, married couples to have different names. So they can actually take, both take the, the women, the wife's surname or the husband's surname, but they can't have different, and so feminist campaign for effectively the Western version of that kind of rule. Um, but yeah, but then miss the, well, from this is my perspective, then miss the bigger picture of, you, you know, you make that change and, and women won't follow it. And I'm, sh and I'm sure there's good reasons for women not following it too, because they don't want you know, their husbands to, you know, they want the best chance for their husbands to provide for them. I don't, I don't know. Sorry, I'm interrupting your yeah. discussion, Emma. Yeah, no, but she, she also mentions in the same sort of area that, you know, women taking, changing their name upon marriage, 
they disappear. They disappear into history. They become someone else. So there's that as well. So last chapter is chapter seven, which is on women and writing. Women who write are a contradiction because to write is to participate. So women began writing literature um, in the 17th century. Women of the Bronte sisters era were openly discouraged from writing on the basis that women ought to keep themselves busy with their proper duties at home. Um, and this would keep her mind off other things like writing. So women understood back then that they were more likely to be heard or published if they wrote under pseudonyms, male pseudonyms. Uh, for example, Jane Eyre was originally written by Charlotte Bronte under the name of Cura Bell, which was a sort of, uh, it wasn't a, it was a non-sex specific name, um, but it certainly wasn't a woman's name. Women writers have had to write to a male audience in order to get published. So the editors, the publishing industry has been overwhelmingly male dominated. So they've had to align themselves and their material to the dominant group and align themselves to what constitutes good writing according to that dominant group. Female audiences too, however, acculturated as they are to male norms, often have negative judgments on women's writing as well. So women publishers also would um, judge women's writing similar in similar ways to men publishers. Women writers have often written with what's known as imaginary man at their shoulders. Even Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own has been critiqued as deliberately softly toned and unable to name men as oppressors of women. Wolfe in subsequent writings was herself critical of this difficult situation that women writers find themselves in. One of the most strongly made and um, disturbing points in the whole book and in this chapter, which we've already raised, but it sort of is um, brought together in this chapter, is about the disappearance of women writers work throughout history. So this happens when publishers who are usually male decide, for example, to let something go out of print. The Bronte sisters, Virginia Woolf, uh, George Eliot and Jane Austen are the four sort of big women writers that are really well known. But in fact, there was probably a whole heap of other women writers that we don't know about. The continuum of women writers has been lost. And this means women are faced with gaping chasms where women writers who were highly successful in their lifetimes have simply faded into invisibility. An example that Spender gives is that of Elizabeth Gaskell, who wrote popular novels containing astute social critique about injustice and the pitfalls of love for women during her lifetime. And yet despite her success and high sales, male literati managed to reduce her work to that of a married woman with children and therefore one of no value. Her work consequently quietly disappeared, meaning that future generations were mostly unaware of her work. More recently, she suggests that women writers are not paying as, as much attention to the man at their shoulder. And particularly in fiction, more women are writing for women. The mutedness of women is to some extent being peeled away. Spender finds we have progressed since then in shedding our muted state by referring to a more recent feminist writer, Adrian Rich, who stated bluntly, this is the oppressor's language. So she didn't have to 
say it kindly. She could just say, this is the oppressor's language. Also, this is, um, she makes the point that we still make today that with regards to writing, women often don't have time to write. Um, that, that there are many instances of male writers being supported by their female partners so they can write. All the shit work is done by the women while the men sit and write and then produce something they get accolades for. Spender describes what really is theft when she says that many of the scenes, for example, in D.H. Lawrence's Sons and Daughters were in fact taken from the notes of Jesse, one of the many romantic partners that he had. Other romantic partners were also stolen from. Finally, she lists non-fiction writing by Betty Friedan, Jermaine Greer, Elizabeth Janeway, Sheila Robotham, Shulamith Firestone, Anne Summers, Mary Daly and Adrian Rich to suggest that women are moving outside the confines of the man-made language imposed on us and taking us on our way to an unmuted state. Historical continuity has to keep going, otherwise we can't get out of this situation. Spender urges us to write, to quote, paradoxically, the most constructive thing women can do in these circumstances is to write. For in the act of writing, we deny our mutedness and begin to eliminate some of the difficulties that have been put upon us. Um, so I will conclude there. And Dale Spender spent a great deal of the rest of her writing life undertaking the very technique that she recommends we all do, and that is to make women visible. So she wrote book after, particularly two books uh, that sought to go back and restore women's achievements in uh, writing and women's feminist achievements and put them into compilations that describe them. They're, they're absolutely wonderful books. And we can't uh, fail to mention Spinifex Press and Renata Klein and Susan Hawthorne, of course, for the work that they do, continuing Spinifex, continuing a feminist press in current circumstances, which is a rare and wonderful thing. But things like feminist presses, like Spinifex, is so crucial to the pro exact process, the, the methodological process of women's liberation that I, I believe Spender sets out in this book. Um, it's, it's just wonderful. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please give it a share. And you can find other similar conversations about women's rights on the Women's Declaration International YouTube channel. You can also support their work on social media. On Twitter, they're at DeclarationOn. And myself, I'm on Twitter at WomenReadWomen. Women.